Welcome to the Board of Education, where troublemakers and system breakers gather to discuss how they are dismantling inequity in public education. Calling our meeting to order is Chairman of the Board, Jonathan Santos Silva. It's been a while. It has Hasn't been too it, long. It has been too long. It's been too long. I mean, uh, last season was a whirlwind. Uh, we busted out some awesome content, really thanks to our board members. Absolutely. And it was off to the races. And it feels like it's been forever. It feels like yes. it's been forever. Uh, and even since season two, um, we have had tons of interaction on social media uh, uh, at the underscore board of ed on Twitter and the gram. Uh, the Board of Ed on Facebook and LinkedIn, and of course, the Board of Ed.com. The conversation just kept going. The conversation just kept going. I think that's because it was so authentic. It wasn't something that we programmed. I mean, it was the Davids, it was Ron, it was, you know, mm-hmm. Kyle and Anna Shea and, you know, Dr. Tonema, Dr. Uh, Kanoyer. They, they stoked the conversation and we jumped into it, but it's, this is the things people are talking about. You know, when M- Malika is talking about supporting teachers, mm-hmm. teachers hear themselves in the stories. So I think it just, it deeply resonated because it was real. Uh, I don't think, I know I didn't know, I don't know about you, but I didn't know where we were going over the course of this season. I just knew we had some amazing people to talk to yeah. um, and that they were going to take us on a journey. And I feel like that's what we have for season two, man. I'm really excited about who we have this year. And, and by the way, if this is your first time listening to the Board of Ed, the, the dulcet tones you just heard was the chairman of the board, Jonathan Santos Silva. I'm Doc Miller. Um, and season two is going to be brilliant. But if you haven't caught season one, definitely go to theboardofed.com and check out last season's recordings. Just some brilliant, brilliant discussions. And I will issue a personal guarantee that this season will be equally as fire as last season yeah you know um it's not again not because i'm trying to promote us Mm -hmm. it's just that the folks that we get to talk to they're number one they're brilliant but number two they're on the front lines just like Mm -hmm. most of you out there uh listening they are doing this work every day we're intentional about identifying folks who are from the communities they serve who have been impacted by the schools that they work in and people who um, are going to bring a different perspective than the general, you know, ed reform conversation. There's nothing wrong with that conversation, but I just feel like it lacks the nuance of reflecting the voices of the people who live in the communities where the schools are not broken, but have been designed uh, to sort our children and to, and to um, make decisions about the future of kids that look different than, you know, the, the, the archetypical white male middle and upper income kid that we imagined you know hundreds of years ago right we have not evolved past that as a system i think folks in the system have worked really hard to try to change schools and classrooms in the you know working in the sphere of influence where they have control but as a whole the system itself hasn't changed remarkably it's not much different than it was all those years ago and yet who we serve is so different uh there and that are really, girls who go to school today, right? Like there yeah. are kids of color who go to school. We can teach black and indigenous kids how to read. It's not against the law. And yeah. so, but we've got to now do more than just allow them in. 
We have to be intentional about how we engage. Yeah. And that that's why the Board of Ed started, right? Like, it's easy to get bored with the same old talk. And, and our goal here is to bring the voices that are fresh, that are on the front lines and that are doing the things that are serving the very kids, Jonathan, that you're talking about. And in the spirit of that, our guest today is brilliant. He's doing this work and he's doing deep thinking with his colleagues in the field. Uh, and of course, we're talking about Dr. Jal Mehta. Yeah, so I stumbled upon uh, Jal in, from an article that he wrote or an op-ed that he wrote in the um, New York Times. And then from there, got to know a little bit more about him. He's written quite a bit on our schools and, and what does it mean to have um, spaces where deep engagement is happening, right? Like, mm -hmm. I know you've been in thousands of classrooms. I've been in quite a few. And we've all been in the classroom where we're like, I don't even want to be here. Like, how many worksheets are we going to do? Or how long do you have to listen mm -hmm. to this teacher drone? And what Jal and his colleagues are out there doing, they spent, they spent, hundreds if not thousands of hours in classrooms in, in traditional public settings and charter settings and large comprehensives and small almost uh, you know mini uh, school type settings trying to figure out what is it what is required to build classrooms where every child is engaged um, and so he's written an awesome book uh, uh, or he co-wrote a book called um, in search of deeper learning yep. but then you know, unless you were under a rock last year, the pandemic happened and it threw, you know, how do we do deep engagement out the window for like, just how do we engage kids yeah. across miles, right? And across uh, screens, across Wi-Fi, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so he wrote this article, which was, uh, it was called uh, Making Schools More Human, in which he challenges us, right? Like to not to waste the moment that we just all survived but really to take it as a charge or a challenge to do school better and different. Yeah. And, and one of the things, one of the quotes from his article that just sticks out to me, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here is, is if the measure of the, of a society is how we treat our, our kids, then, then we have failed. Right. And, and mm. man, that is a punch in the gut that, that, you know, all the research tells us is, is warranted. Like, like we, 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 we've got to do better. Um, and he even, uh, in the conversation that, that we're getting ready to have, uh, uh, with, with you and jaw, he starts to explore how even in the pandemic, those, those disparities in access are even greater, hmm. right? Let's take a listen. You've got, you know, private schools, um, I have nothing against private schools. I went to a private school when I was a kid, but like, you know, you got private schools that are, you know, buying tents and creating opportunities for kids to have in-person outdoor learning opportunities. And you got public schools serving poor kids where we can't even arrange to get them a decent internet connection or uh, a tablet or a computer. You got kids like, you know, trying, you have three kids in one family on a one phone trying to do school. You got kids hanging out outside of McDonald's uh, trying to uh, go to school. You've got high school kids going to work because they need to support their families. Um, when uh, really like we as a society could be supporting their families so they could be in school. 
Um, so um, you've got states that opened up uh, bars and restaurants knowing that that would um, increase the spread of the disease and make it harder for it to the same places to open in-person schools. So just just in a lot of ways, if if we really had said at the beginning, like we're going to prioritize our young people and we're going to think about what they need during this pandemic, we, we as a society, not 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 the teachers, not the people in the school, but like the the politicians and the society that votes for the politicians, um, we we could have just done so much better. Um, I mean, we could have done better at a lot of things, including handling the pandemic, but. Uh, this is just sort of one one dimension. I'll just stick to the part where I have expertise. Right. No, <laughs> no I'm with you. I, I what I love about it starting there is that, like, like I said, it's a haymaker. You're not pulling a punch. Uh, I, as a reader, knew right away that this is something I wanted to engage with because that's a lot of what we talk about here on the board of ed. Um, I, you know, you often hear education system is broken. We need to address that. We need to fix that. And my stance has been for a long time. I don't, I used to think it was broken. Now I believe we're getting exactly what it was designed to get. Like the school system was not designed for black and brown youth. And when it was, you know, for in the case of indigenous students, it was a really um, a harmful goal of, you know, taking away what essentially made these communities so rich and vibrant. Now that we go into the pandemic, it's not that, you know, and I don't think this was your article saying, it's not that the pandemic has created these issues. The pandemic is like this incredible magnifying glass that helps the casual observer of education see just how vast the, 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 the differences are and your experience just based on zip code or your ability to pay for um, private education. Um, you mentioned in the article, some really powerful lessons that we gather from what we're able to see from under that microscope. Um, one of them being like, uh, it, it reviewed, it, it revealed the limits of the one size fits all model, you know, the, the factory model. Can you talk a little bit about, about that? What did you observe or what did you hear that like just blew that, that myth out that we could do one size fits all out of the water? Yeah. So I'll, I'll answer that in a second, but first I wanted to respond to what you said before mm -hmm. that, which is, um, it's not like the system was working great and then there was a pandemic and right, the, right. the challenge is to put it back the way that it was. It's that the system had two big problems before the pandemic. One was massive inequities in what students received. And then the other was, even if you have your kid in a sort of suburban middle or upper middle class school, you know, you ask your kid at the end of the day, like, what did you learn today? What did you do today? Like, the average answer is going to be, you know, nothing. I went to school. <laughs> Why are you asking me about this? Uh, so there's just sort of like a massive waste of human potential. You know, I've got kids, including one 14 month year old, you know, they come out of the womb pretty much interested in everything. And by sixth or seventh grade, like the number one word they're going to say about school is boring. So Essentially, we've taken people who start with a lot of curiosity and gradually kind of drained it from them inside school walls. They still got plenty of curiosity about all sorts of other things. Like if you watch kids in the hallways and then you watch the transition from that to when school actually starts, you'll see all of these sort of like chattering, 
interested, very vivacious people all of a sudden become sort of like sullen, passive, uh, quiet people. Well, why why is that? That's that's sort of like what we're what we're doing to them, not um, what what they're like. So um, so anyway, so we sort of had these sort of two big problems before the pandemic. And I think this is just so when parents see, you know, kids doing things in their living rooms that don't feel very interesting or lots of worksheets, like the kids were already doing those things. You just never saw them because it was happening at school. When I when kids are outside McDonald's, like reporters will see them there and put them on the news. But previously kids were in crumbling schools and no one goes into those schools. So it's not on the news. But the sort of the effect is the is the same. So I, I totally agree with you there. Mm-hmm. Um, on the one size fits all. Yeah, I mean, I think um, people just come in all shapes and sorts. And I think a big, I think a, a reason a lot of people are happier as adults than they were in school is because school just asks you to be sort of like one kind of person and that just doesn't work for everybody. Um, I think the most obvious one the pandemic has revealed is sort of extroverts and introverts. Like extroverts were going nuts when there was no school and introverts were like, you know, this isn't that bad. I can, you know, (laughs) stay in my pajamas all day and still learn the same stuff. I don't have to go and sort of, you know, turn myself on and do this whole social performance and uh, kids who are bullied and kids who aren't and all the rest of it. So... I think there are um, just a lot of ways that kids are different. And I think the way we usually do it in school is we sort of like teach to like the middle of the middle, and then we create, you know, special programs of this and that for kids who don't fit into that. And I think the better question is like, is there a way that we could just sort of like rearrange the pieces so that more you know, they're just sort of like more varied modalities. I mean, it's pretty clear, like kids don't have to sit at a desk to learn, like kids can learn on a couch. Uh, Some kids learn really well on their own, other kids really need social accountability. And we just don't have any uh, variety. Um, I'll say one more thing. Um, There are all these articles starting to emerge, like um, during the pandemic, um, people worked from home and now there's sort of an opportunity to go back to work. And is it still going to be the nine to five and go and sit at the desk or the cubicle all day and come home? Or is there going to be some other configuration of that? Or could some people be at home or some people be at work? And that just was reminding me a lot of school, you know, like the nine to five is a lot like the, you know, eight to three for the kids. And as we sort of like are have this opportunity to sort of like rethink what we did with work, why don't we also like similarly like rethink what we're doing yeah. with school? Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. And I think it's, 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 it's appropriate for this moment as we're coming out of the pandemic and rethinking school uh, or trying to, but it's also, I think a damning, to use the words from the article, it's a damning indictment on the system of yeah. schools, right? Because yeah. in the same time that we have moved from like horse-drawn carriages or like a Ford Model T or whatever, where everyone gets a black one, we now have like fully electric vehicles, yeah. but school is still rose. So like he, he says, he asks it, why don't we similarly rethink what we're doing with school? Right. And it seems yeah. like a simple question, but it, 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 I think it underscores really like the, the, um, the like commitment to maintaining the status quo. That is like the, 
like the yeah. central driver of how we do schools, right? And what's what's different to me is that it doesn't make it, it doesn't shock anyone that a, a, a business owner whose driver is profit would say, "Wait a minute, this environment's not working. I need to change it so that my employers are more, my employees are more productive. I make more money." But with school, it's like they got to be here anyway. I don't give a damn. We're going to do school the way we did it yesterday. This really reminds me of the conversation that you and I, Jonathan had with. Um, uh, with the 74 million and mm. Astra Lear in, in an article that they did uh, on our show um, where we talked about like if we approached education less like the factory model where profit is the outcome and more an artisanal model, right? Mm. Where we go, the, the outcome is the product. The, out, the, the Like the thing that matters the most in the artisanal model is the quality of the product. And that is the education of the kid mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, the, the really good cheese or the, you know, the whatever, right. but, but I, I think that's important. And, and it connects at least to me to some work and, and an analogy, uh, a Canadian uh, educational psychology researcher named Shelley Moore um, talks about the mythical average mm. through the analogy of a seven ten split. Now, um, though I look like it, I don't do much bowling. Uh, <laughs> but um, at least as, as of this recording, what I've learned is a seven ten split in bowling is where you have those two pins left standing, right? Um, and the reason that happens is because we're taught to head for the middle pin. We head for the, the average, right? But a seven ten split has only been picked up on, Nash, on, on television four times in history, because it's an impossible shot. So the question is, how, how has it only happened four times? Professional bowlers don't bowl for the center pin. Mm. They bowl for the pins that are the hardest to hit. They bowl for the pins that have that nuance that we that that, that will, will make them fall easier. And so the analogy to, to what Jal is saying is like, if we think about kids as individual human beings with their needs, and we target that, we're actually going to get more kids that way. Right. We're not going to end up with the mythical average falling. And then we just have the, you know, the kids who need additional uh, support and the kids who are, who um, are already excelling, standing on their own going, what do I do? Right. Right. And I think what I, I you know, to take that metaphor even farther, I, I really love it when we are talking about shooting for the middle of the middle, what we're actually in more cases, right? More so than any kind of ability, right? Because it's, we know that school is not always about ability. It's more so about certain factors that the young person is coming to school with. Right. We know generally that kids in the middle have certain support systems in place, certain structures that support them at home and at school that they're, probably less likely to be exposed to trauma. The kids that we struggle to support mm-hmm. tend to be on the outskirts of that. That's the seven ten split, right? Or the seven yep. to 10 pin. Yep. If we, whenever we design for the young people who encounter the most obstacles, by, by just, by the nature of design, we are making it easier for all students. So I really Absolutely. do love that. I love that analogy because it really brings us to think about rather than just saying, hey, this is good enough for Doc and Jonathan or whoever's in the middle, or we think about the kids who have so many obstacles and we make sure that school is affirming for them and welcoming for them and engaging for them, yep. then the, the kids in the middle are going to do just fine. 
And, and to, to those who say, like, are, are we supposed to be planning for for that? Like, a rising tide floats all boats. That's what my old one of my old principals used to say, right? Like, the things that we do for the kids who do need the most support are going to help the kids who don't necessarily need that support, mm. but it's going to create a deeper learning opportunity. And I think as, as you and y'all continue your conversation, I'm I'm really excited to hear about his thinking on like, if we're, if we're talking about kids and kids in school, we have to understand their mindset. Like mm. what are they thinking going into school every day? I think the, the, the big picture is students don't know why they're in school. They, they, they go to school because they're required to by law and because their parents drop them off in the morning and pick them up at the end of the day. And um, so at the most basic level, kids need to have sort of see a purpose and a reason to the work that they're doing. And really everything should follow uh, from that. Um, in a study that my colleague Sarah and Fine and I did in 2019, or it was published in 2019, we spent like six or seven years across the 2010s in schools. And we were looking for spaces where kids felt you know, purposeful, engaged, we're doing complex work, et cetera. And we found a lot of that in high schools in the sort of extracurricular and elective spaces because those were spaces where, so like theater, arts, drama, sports, newspaper, um, and then also elective classes, you know, marine biology, Vietnam, uh, green engineering, whatever it is. And in all of those spaces, you know, kids could sort of see the purpose of what they were doing. They were in the extracurriculars, especially they were given leadership roles. Um, you know, the same kid who at two o'clock was being told like, you know, fill out this worksheet because I said so at three 30 is like the stage manager of the production and is managing 50 people and where they go and at what time and so on and so forth. And we found that, you know, teachers who similarly had created roles in their classes and ways for students to kind of take leadership and ownership were just a lot more successful that essentially like the the in-school space should be modeling itself on the out-of-school space, not uh, vice versa. So I think we have sort of some, some pieces. Um, and the question is like, how could we take those pieces and get them kind of more regularly into more of students' time? Right. And so like, I'm imagining the person who's like, you know, well, yeah, that works in, in, in the newspaper that works for drama after school, but I have standards or I have, you know, this pacing guide, like what are some of the very real restrictions that, or obstacles? Cause I don't, you know, they're not necessarily hard and fast, but what are some of the real obstacles schools and teachers encounter? And maybe what are some of the suggestions for how they combat that? How do they make school feel more like some of that out of school time learning? Yeah, so that's a that's a great question. Um, uh, so, you know, so on the pacing guides, like where do pacing guides come from? Pacing guides sort of fundamentally come out of distrust. That that essentially a pacing guide is someone at a, a district level saying, unless we require that kids, you know, cover this amount of material at this pace, we think that you, the teachers, 
are, you know, bad things will happen to the kids because we'll give the teachers more discretion and they won't use that discretion well. So I, I think at the very beginning, th that's an assumption that we really need to, uh, to question. So like when we asked teachers what the biggest barriers were to um, sort of doing deeper or more powerful learning, they said pacing guidelines, teaching evalu teacher evaluation systems, and standardized tests. So those sort of three forces were the things. And that's, I think, also why in a lot of schools they pointed us to the elective spaces, because those were the spaces that were not subject to those uh, constraints. So like, for example, I remember a history teacher that we found in our study, and uh, he was an American history teacher, and he was teaching a course from like, you know, the American Revolution, like, I don't know, maybe up to like 1950 or something like that, an American history course from beginning of the 18th century through the middle of the 20th century. And like, a, you know, maybe three, four weeks into school, they were talking about the founding fathers. And it came out that, you know, Thomas Jefferson and others had had slaves. And like, what does it mean for um, the nation to be founded on this sort of contradiction of the people who were the founding fathers also being slaveholders. And he said, you know, as a younger teacher, I would have said, like, that's interesting, but we need to move on. And he's like, as a more experienced teacher, I was like, wait a minute, like, I have students who are really interested in this really essential question. And so he sort of stopped. And they spent, you know, like three or four weeks basically like exploring, like, what does it mean for a nation to be founded on a racial contradiction? And like, I think we would all agree that that is a good use of time, that if students spend a month really thinking about that, that that's better than them, you know, learning, you know, the Stamps Act and the Townsend Act and all the like, you know, specific things in the trajectory. Like that's a significant thing that you'll need to remember. And so as a result, like somewhere later in the year, something got a little less, you know, got a little shorter shrift, but I think that's a good decision. So to, at the teacher level, I would say push, push back because if, if students report and parents report that students are really having an interesting intellectual experience in your class, then it's it seems pretty unlikely that a district administrator is going to come and be like, oh, I know we're getting great reports from parents and principals about your work, but like you're not following the pacing guidelines, so you're fired. Like chances of that are 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 it so it takes courage, but I think um a lot of the teachers in our study who were uh, more successful teachers were in their 40s and i think a big part of that was they had developed the courage of their convictions they had done it the way people told them to do it for a while and then they gradually learned like this is what my students really need some of our teachers had even followed their students into college or community college and interviewed their next professors and they learned that like while it like broke their heart as like a 10th grade english teacher not to get to the shakespeare play at the end of the day it was the kids ability to think and reason and write that you know really mattered and um so that's uh that's one thing um with standards i mean standards um there are often are lots of different ways to teach any given standard so like, let's say the standard is like something about like correlation versus causation. Like you could do that out of the textbook, but there are all sorts of like interesting things you could do that would also get at that same standard. So uh, we definitely found some schools that the teachers sat down with the standards in August 
and sort of planned out their projects and other units in ways that, you know, they knew they would hit the standards across the course of the year, but the standards kind of, to your human point, like the standards serve the human beings rather than like the human beings serving the standards. Right. That human theme comes through a lot in the article. Um, and I think it's like the second lesson, you know, like the, less, the necessity to make schools more human. And when we talked to Kyle Quadros, one of our guests last season, he made a very, I mean, a, just a very simple um, story, but it still resonates. And I remember it. He's like, you know, in, in traditional school, kid walks in and the teacher asks, uh, did you finish your homework? Whereas in virtual school, a lot of times what teachers were asking were, how are you doing? How's your family? Mm-hmm. And it just like switched the order to the, you know, the, the, the child, the, the human first. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a very small thing. But I wonder um, in your conversations with teachers or in your, your school observations, what are the, some of the ways that, you know, as a, as a principal, as someone who's planning, creating the schedule or preparing for summer PD for the fall and assuming that we're going back to regular school, what are some of the ways that she can uh, create conditions for school to be more human in the yeah. fall of 2021? Yeah, I think that's a really good observation um, that the priority, kind of the ground, the foreground and the background shifted a little this year and what I think is a really healthy way. I mean, just got to remember, you know, the, the purpose of school is not to sort of stuff all of this content in the kids. The purpose of school is to raise young people that you would be proud of. And that doesn't mean, everybody always hears all these either ors, you know, like you wouldn't be proud of a young person who was kind and empathetic, but like didn't know anything and couldn't think very well, you know, like you you, you need balance, but you gotta start with what's, um, with what's important. Um, I think specifically, um, a couple of things. Um, at least in Massachusetts this year, there was a period before school started um, and where teachers were paid, but school hadn't started yet. And they used some portion of that time in a lot of schools to do trust visits with families. Um, and I think that's really smart. Like before the year starts, before the kid hasn't turned in homework and you're angry at him or her, just like, what are your goals for your for your child and to the to the student like what are your goals for this year um and so just sort of building some of that at the beginning uh, i think is critical um i mentioned this briefly in the article some schools uh high schools and middle schools moved from a semester system to a quarter system so rather than teaching six or seven things at a time um and um having teachers responsible for 150 kids, you've got, you're teaching three things at a time and teachers are responsible for 75 kids. That makes a big difference because we talk a lot about class size, which is important, but it's it's also teacher load. Like how many people is a teacher expected to be responsible for at a given time? So if you, by rearranging the schedule, if you pair those ratios, it just makes it a lot more possible to build those kind of relationships. I mean, I, I think in private schools, you would never see a teacher responsible for more than 80 students. And so the fact that in some comprehensive public schools, teachers are responsible for as many as 160 students is uh, is just crazy. And um, there's um, so I think that's uh, that's that's part of it. Um, but I, I just I think the pandemic has just sort of like reminded us of our core humanity. And so. Mm-hmm. 
holding on to that and not being so sort of like transactional, I think is a big part of the key. I don't know about you, but I feel seen and heard. <laughs> Man, my my last six, seven years in the classroom, I saw 160 different faces every single day. Wow. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think Jal is hitting the nail right on the head. Is we 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 I think we have a feeling for what we need to do, mm-hmm. but we've got to create the scenarios in which we can do it. Right. Well, I think what's um, what's I think like really viscerally hitting me is that like, you know, I've read in pl- a few different pr- places about um, how human societies evolved and communities and why, like, I don't know, like somewhere in that 100 to 120 or 140 range were like tribes and mm-hmm. communities, you know, because that's about the extent to which you really can form mm-hmm. deep and meaningful relationships. So when you're already starting with 160 kids, you've already stretched this teacher far beyond that, right? Whereas if you have more like 80, I mean, you also have to think that they've got a principal, they've got colleagues. So their community is already pretty solid. But yep. within that 80 students, how much more opportunity is there for you to be, you know, go deeper, mm-hmm. recognize the humanity of each child, recognize what makes them unique, but also what makes us similar yep. um, and, and build lessons that engage um, young people based on what they bring into the table, that, that, that background that they bring. I feel like, I mean, it's just like, it seems in some ways when, when someone says, Hey, you know, we need to break down some of these large schools so teachers can have relationships. It sounds radical, but it's really just who we are. It's in our biology. It's how we're made. You know, I, we, like I, I used to, when I, when I got on Facebook for the first time, like I would send a happy birthday to everybody when I would get that notice. Right. And now I have, you know, I get every day, like you have 10 friends who have a birthday today. And I'm like, I, I can't, like I can't, <laughs> like I can't process that many people at once. So, so then I'm like, I go, well, then if I can't do it for one, I don't do it for everybody. And that really is like what happened, right. It, to, to schools is mm-hmm. I think, I think every teacher out there, uh, especially the ones listening to this program are like, I would love to do that for all my kids. I would love to sit down and have the conversations and get to know uh, our, our kids. And I can't find the functional way to do it. And, and I do think one, you're right. If we could break those schools down to where we have more manageable sizes, where kids are getting the attention from teachers that they need in order to be successful, that's huge. I also think it's possible for schools to take, an approach where every kid at least has an adult mentor or two in the building, right? right. And those mentors can then act as advocates, right? So mm-hmm. maybe I can't sit down with all 160 of the kids who come into my classroom on a daily basis, but I can get 30 and this teacher has another 30 and this teacher has another 30 and we can start to build a community where kids do feel heard and do feel seen and, and where the adults are talking and not about what book are you reading next? But about what is best for our kids, mm. right? Yep. I think that's like a, a way to break down a school without actually breaking any walls down or, or changing it. Mm. Is like thinking about how do we do uh, more less, right? I, yes. I feel like so much of school is to do more and more, right? Like if, if these 10 standards are good, we should teach these 14. If these 14 are good, we, why don't we have 17? And then you get to the end of the year and you have teachers who are, overtaxed, overburdened, burnt out, right? Same thing for the kids who were preparing for, so it's like, it's always more, more kids, 
on your caseload, more stuff to teach. I think we got to figure out how to do better with less. I, I absolutely agree. It's it's the curse of, of the word cover, right? Mm. Uh, it, it, when I'm when I'm coaching teachers, uh, the cover is a curse word as far as I'm concerned, right? Mm. What you're saying is I don't have time to make sure kids can deeply internalize and learn it. I just I covered it. We talked about it. It's it's checked off the list and we're done. Well, we need to stop covering things and start going deep. As a matter of fact, Jaw talks about that next in your conversation, where we're where what happens if we don't read that book this year, mm. right? Right. What happens if we take a book and go deep and really learn it, right? Um, he's going to say it a lot better than I am. So let's rejoin your conversation in progress. If you watch, you know, departments say, you know, debate, like, well, we can't like cut like Moby Dick, like what kind of English department would we be? Like sometimes <laughs> you just got to like bundle it up and like thank it for its service and, uh, you know, let it go. If there's going to be, you know, there's only so much the kids can read. So if there's going to be more, you know, Gabrielle Garcia Marquez, there might need to be less Melville, you know, like you're going to have to make some choices. Um, I think on your, um, on your broader question, um, I think sort of dividing things into some categories would be helpful. So there are, um, there are a lot of things in the curriculum that are kind of nice to haves, but not must haves. A lot of things that you and I learned about when we were in school that we probably could not remember uh, now. And so if some of that were cut, it could, and it were not like made up, uh, there's no sort of like lasting damage to that. So that's one category, the nice to haves. There are things that are that recur throughout the curriculum. So like my fourth grade son is learning how to write, you know, an essay with topic sentences and supporting details. Like he's going to be doing that every year until he graduates from high school. So like you don't need to like you can just do the like the fifth grade version of that. You don't need to like repeat the fourth grade version. Um, and then there are some things which are, you know, essential. You're like, you know, your Shakespeare's, your Du Bois's, your Newton's, like you're not cutting those things. So you want to, you, you'll keep those things. And then there's some subjects like math, which really are, teachers see them at least as sequential. Um, and so it may be the case that like, you know, you, you can't move on to something in, you know, fractions until you've learned more about what a denominator is or whatever, like the curriculum really does uh, build on itself. And there, even there, I would say like, just be judicious. Like um, I have a friend who talks about the difference between just in case learning and just in time learning. Uh, just in, we do a lot of just in case learning in school. Like you gotta learn all this stuff just in case, you know, you're uh, on a plane and you need your calculus immediately. Whereas he's like, just in time learning is like, I put you in a forest and you need to get out of it. And I offer you a lesson on how to use a compass. Like all of a sudden, like you're a lot more interested in that lesson. And so if the fifth grade teacher, like if there's a sub part of math that a bunch of fourth graders missed that they really need to do the fifth grade thing, then sure, teach the thing. But like, don't, I think your point about stress and, you know, it's just been a really hard year. And the kids who like have the most quote unquote learning loss 
are also the kids who are most likely to have lost parents or relatives to the pandemic, mm -hmm. uh, who are most likely to have had food scarcity. Like they have had it the worst, not just with respect to learning loss, but with respect to everything else. And so uh, you're just trying to sort of like, you know, rebuild these human beings and you're trying to build on the assets. They've also been forced to take on responsibility. You got older siblings caring for younger siblings. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, good things, or at least people have had to be more independent than they are in school. And so can you build on some of that? Mm. No, I love that. I was actually talking to like a, a junior the other day and she's talking about how she's learning logs, logarithms. And I'm like, I'm 37 years old. She's 17. I'm like, in the 20 years since I was your age, I haven't thought about logs. I haven't had to do them. You know, and I, I think of that as like a just in, just in case, I guess I decide to be an, you know, I don't know, astrophysicist or something. I might need that. But isn't <laughs> it interesting that when the pandemic started, all of a sudden, like, oh, exponential growth, like, that is a topic that like we all need to know something about like how do we get from like five people in the US having coronavirus to you know you know hundreds of thousands of people and so like you know in the spring i was urging teachers like now is your chance like teach exponential growth because it's relevant like people want to know about it so right no that reminds me too like when i was a principal we had a math teacher she was teaching um uh, exponential growth and models um, using like uh, the zombie stuff. This was, you know, four or five mm -hmm. years ago, Walking Dead was, mm -hmm. I mean, it's still out, but mm -hmm. you know, it was like hot. And uh, I thought that was really neat. And then I'm thinking if she was teaching that now, she could use that basic framework and talk about how the virus spreads. It's the same idea. Um, and it becomes infinitely more relevant. You know, it, it was fun. Oh, it's zombie. We're not just doing regular math, but all of a sudden it's a way that they can look at the data that they're consuming on um, uh, in the news or on social media and, and make meaning. Um, I feel like that's the kind of learning that we often reserve for like the gifted and talented class or like, you know, the private school. And while we're filling, you know, the other, those other kids, you know, we're, we're you know, uh, worksheets and, and uh, drills before the assessment. And they, you know, they, they uh, our black and brown students and our, you know, lower income students, they never gain access to that style of learning. I totally agree. And I think that there is a critical point um, buried in what you just said, which is, you know, if we treat schooling like a, a machine, which we're just sort of trying to optimize, like you optimized that machine in 2016 around the zombies, but in 2021, like it's a different world. So like schools are not closed systems, they're open systems. Like people live in the world and they're being influenced by the events and things that go by them. And so good teachers have to, like there's a base, which is the same in this case exponents, but they have to have the flexibility to adapt it to where things are. And I think when teachers do that, it's amazing. And it really, um, you know, kids are interested in lots of things. And we just sort of drain all of those questions out. And we're like, this is what you're doing today. And then we're like, how come they're not engaged? Right. Well, <laughs> like, um, so I knew a project-based school that 
a really smart school leader said like, you know, if you ask kids what their interests are, they'll say like basketball and video games. But if you ask them what their questions are, they'll be like, how's the world going to end? And literally they sixth grade class, like made a list of all of their questions. And then they like, you know, dot plot vote voted them. And so like the leading question was like, how is the world going to end? And they split the kids up into groups and you had like a, a group re- reviewing like nuclear war and a group reviewing climate change and a group doing infectious disease. And um, and then they like had a, a presentation day where like each team had to sort of like explain like a different way the world was going to end and like the likelihood that that would happen. Now that's kind of dark, but that's that's kind of like where adolescents are. And, yeah. uh, you know, and, also- but a lot of really good learning can happen through that kind of process. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of want to be in that class. Right? Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> it is dark. Not going to lie. It's dark. But like, yeah. how can you like, there is so much to learn in those conversations. Right. And there's so much you can build into. I mean, think about it. Uh, if you're studying nuclear war, mm-hmm. there's science in there. There's right. history in there. There's politics, government, you know, math. Like, so so you, you go into one of these questions and it's it's like so ripe for a teacher to dig and pull pull interesting sub questions, you know, out of it. I think the other part of it is that like, I think the point I don't want to miss is how many times do we ask a kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? Mm-hmm. Like that's a really ridiculous question to ask a 14 year old or a 15 or 17, even 18 year old, because most kids don't know. And the ones who say they know, you know, the, the law of averages says that he or she or they are likely to change it, right? So rather yeah. than ask them, what are you gonna be when you grow up? I don't know, ask them things like that. What questions do you wanna answer? What yeah. do you wanna solve in the world, right? Like let them go with their inquiry and curiosity. And, and there's a stress behind that question too of what do you wanna be when you grow up? Cause it feels like a commitment, right? Like what happens if I'm not? I think the other sort of insidious part of that question is, the options are only the ones that I've intersected with, mm-hmm. right? If I've, you know, if I live in Indiana, I may not have intersected with a marine biologist at Coastal Carolina University, my alma mater, Groshana Clears. And, <laughs> uh, right, like, I, like, that would not be on my list because it's not something I've been exposed to. And these kinds of opportunities that Jaws talking about exposes kids to far more ideas than the sort of of ritualistic pedantic sticking to topics in the curriculum right right letting kids ask questions allows them to find new information that breeds more questions which breeds more study which breeds more questions and opens the world up in a way that a a like a strictly defined here's what we're quote unquote covering should bleep that word out from now on mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like that it, it takes that away and allows this sort of authentic engagement that also feels exciting. Mm. Well, I think I think when we talk about taking anything out of the canon, mm-hmm. oh, you're dumbing it down. You're not exposing them to the classics. Mm-hmm. But what we just saw was when you allow young people to ask meaningful, deep, authentic questions mm-hmm. that what they, they get exposed to so much. Right. Like just in that in that activity chemistry, politics, military, um, uh, environmental science, like so many careers 
could like pop into my mind as I'm listening to my either doing my presentation or listening to the others. How is that to me? That's not dumbing it down, really, for mm -hmm. like to your point that it, that might expose me to things that I would never be exposed to if, if it's only dependent upon what my parents or what my 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 aunts and uncles bring into my house. Yeah. If, if they don't have the career, I don't know about it. Dumbing it down is that is is the phrase, right? Like that's that's the pushback phrase that we're going to hear from the folks who are, you know, and I'm not, we're not villainizing anybody who thinks that Moby Dick should be taught in every class, right? Like, mm -hmm. no, but I think the question we need to ask Jal is how do we know what to double down on and what can be removed? I think the skills is the key point. Like these are the core skills that we want our students to be able to exhibit these are the things we want them to know and be able to do by graduation. And then I think you justify particular decisions in light of those skills. So like if the goal is for students to be able to empathize with someone who is different from them or perspective taking or analyze themes and symbols or, um, understand the class between Western and Eastern civilization, like there are many different books that will do all of those things. And so then the question is, I mean, there was an English department chair in our book who I thought did a really nice job. She had sort of like the traditionalists who wanted to stick with the Western canon. She had younger teachers who wanted many more authors of color and um, non-Western authors. And then they had survey data on students showing that students liked some books and not others. And she just kind of patiently kind of hosted a, a, a conversation that really ran over years. And they like w went through it at the level of like book by book, like we can let this one go, but we're gonna keep that one and that'll create more space. And our students of color are showing more interest in our courses and in our books. And so that data is going up. And so I think there is a way in which you sort of honor the different perspectives, but like gradually try to push things forward. Mm. No, I love that. I love that. And again, I think it kind of ties into something you said earlier around using the data, right? Like the, the student engagement data, what kids are saying about class. It's not just, mm -hmm. I picked, I cut out Moby Dick because I didn't like it. <laughs> it's we chose we chose this book instead and here's what we were hearing from students and their families so I, I love that but that's I mean that's for another conversation that's the whole issue with the like closed loop in communication we so very rarely you know every there are a lot of folks who want to fight about being you know I'm student-centered you know I you know I'm, I'm I carry the banner for student-centered and what they're I think what they're really saying is I'm student proximate like I'm, I'm near kids I'm around them <laughs> like they they don't actually like engage them and and like figuring out what is it that you really need to get from this or what is it that you want to get what am i missing you know student student proximate i like that <laughs> and also um i think there's there's now more student feedback but there's not much student agency right, right. so like if you're really serious then you uh should be willing to let students i mean i don't know what we're talking about let like these it's their education at the end of the day, but um, enable students to make some choices about some portion of their learning. Um, I mean, sometimes people ask me like, okay, you did all this research in schools, like what have you changed in your own teaching? And the biggest thing I've changed is like, give people more choices and give them more agency. And like, 
much more interesting things uh, will happen. So like, I don't know if I was teaching on like, what is deeper learning? Uh, a long time ago, I might have taken a given lesson in a subject, let's say biology, and I might have, you know, given you a picture of a cell and I might have said, okay, like teach a lesson on the cell and make it deeper. And that's how I would have taught it. I would have said, you know, this is interactive. I'm asking them to think about it, et cetera. But I didn't really account for the fact that like across a bunch of students in an education program, like, you know, there are some people who have some interest in science and the cell, but there are people there who want to be math teachers or are interested in history and stuff. So now I set up three stations and I say like, okay, do this with a math problem, do this with this history scenario, do this with the science scenario. And like, you pick which one you want to go to and then like report back on what you did and why, and we'll have a cross discussion. So I don't actually care like which subject they're learning it in. I just want them to think about like what kind of deeper instruction looks like. But from their perspective, being able to choose, am I going to be learning about the cell? Am I like, am I going to spend an hour, two hours on the cell? Or am I going to spend, you know, two hours on how to teach busing in Boston? Or am I going to spend, you know, two hours on how to like integrate statistics into an ethical question? Like if I just gave that to you, like, you know, just probably just in your affect, like one of those three sounds a lot better to you than the other two. So. <laughs> He's talking about scientists, science and Jonathan is closing up like a clam <laughs> i mean those three for me i mean the busting in boston hits you know and i, I think first of all like him watching me <clears throat> excuse me as he introduced the topics is like what a teacher should be doing right like mm -hmm. how are kids responding when he says busting in boston first of all he didn't know it i grew up south of boston less than 45 minutes away i went to college in boston i dated a girl in college who was a metco kid you know, they got bust into like best bus out of Boston into like the suburban, like white ritzy schools. So like this, that like grabs my attention. And then just as a black man, this idea that like, oh, you want to give black kids a good education? Let them benefit through osmosis by being around wealthy white kids. Like what a crappy philosophy of education, yeah. right? Like the only way to get kids to do better is to get them out of their community. Yeah. Right. So like. I'm going to be drawn to that. And I'm going to like, you just see my energy popping up. I'm going to dive into that content in a, a way that I'm just not. Yeah. If you just like slap the textbook in front of me and go, okay, we're going to do the cell. Yeah. I, I think, you know, and again, as a, as a long time classroom teacher, you know, we'll say, man, this, I'm excited to do this activity or this lab or this whatever, because it's really engaging. And I think the kids will like it. I, I think a really good question is how do you know? Mm -hmm. Like you like it and that's great. Like, like that has to be a starting point. Like as the teacher, you, you need to feel engaged with your curriculum and what you're going to teach. But if you have to have a relationship with kids to know what is going to engage them and what they're going to find interesting. And, you know, you get these people who are talking about like, you know, they're telling us to let kids choose what they learn. We're saying let kids have choices in what and how they learn, right? We're not saying that kids need to write their own curriculum. We're saying there are opportunities for kids to learn in different ways and in different contexts. And if they have some autonomy there, the learning, the impact on learning is much deeper. Well, you know, the, the asking kids or inquiring 
about interests and passions or what questions you want to answer is about sharing power, mm-hmm. right? That's something that we don't often like to talk about, but there's a inherent power differential in the way schools operate now. Yep. How the end line consumer of education has no say is beyond me. And not only the, the young people themselves, but also their families. It's about power and control, you know, like, um, am I really going to let other people make decisions and things that, you know, there's like people talk a good game about like parental involvement, but at most schools and teachers, like they just want the parents to make the kids do their homework and (laughs) come on time. And, you know, so, um, I think a lot of this and same with the, we were talking before about the pacing guides and, uh, same thing, like districts giving up power to schools and teachers. Um, and so at the end of the day, like the most relevant people are the, the student, the parent and the teacher and the, like the most relevant interactions happen amongst that triangle of folks. And so the more it works for those three parties, the better it's going to be. Every time you involve students or parents or community members, things that it will take um, adults in power a long time to see, those other folks can put them on the table very quickly because it's so obvious and salient to them. There's a process which you might know about called instructional rounds where teachers Mm -hmm. go around and look at each other's practice and uh, debrief. And some districts that I know have started including students in those rounds. And the reports are students are just a lot more honest. They cut faster to the point. You know, half the kids seem to have their head on their desk or looking out the window. What's up with that? Like adults just don't (laughs) say that to each other because it seems not polite, but like, you know, like that that's at the I was at a sort of internship based school and the kids spent like every other day in the field, which in theory was a great idea, but um some of the kids weren't getting much responsibility in their internships. And I was the visitor, and so the teacher was trying to make it seem all impressive. And the kids like to another kid, sounds like you just got coffee all day. Like, how are you gonna learn anything doing that? <laughs> and I was like <laughs> You know, like, okay, that's hard to talk about if you put a big investment in like placing this kid in this place. But like, we need to talk about it if it's really going to work. Why is it that the most groundbreaking ideas are always the the simplest, right? Like, you want to know about how schools are working? Ask kids. (laughs) Yeah, well, because I think it goes back to the idea about uh, we talked about right before we jump back in the withdrawal about power. Yeah. When a kid asks why the heads are down or why no one's, you know, following along or why is this happening? What's that? We take it as a threat. Like it's like a, like a challenge to our person when it's an honest observation and it's, and it's, and it's hopeful, ideally given in the spirit of making school better, but yeah. I've got a degree, I've got this and that. And it's like, that's fine. You have a degree, but you're not the student. The yeah. young people are experiencing it. And if it's like, they say, you know, if no one's learning, no one's teaching. If yeah. the young people are telling you it's not working, it doesn't matter what degree we have. We have to have enough humility to be willing to take that feedback and improve our practices. It's the only thing that we can do uh, for our for the, for their future, right? We've got to be willing to listen to them. Yeah, and, and 
it boils down to, and I think this is something that, that we as, as a society, you know, as an American society, we don't do well. And that is understand that, that there is a difference between our intent and our impact. Mm. Right. And, you know, I, I don't, I can't recall meeting a teacher who I'll go, your intent is off. Right. Like I don't, I've never met a teacher who goes, I want to oppress kids. And I like, no, but there are actions that we take that create oppressive learning environments. And that's the, that's the impact. And so getting offended by that is like being offended for somebody telling you, you have something stuck in your teeth, right? Like you didn't put that piece of spinach there. Jonathan. Just <laughs> it's whatever that black sludge is that you're drinking. I don't know what that is. I'm, I'm, I'm on a smoothie cleanse. Okay. Okay. Uh, so it's not black. It's just really deep green. And yeah. there is spinach. So you said, I'm like, mm, I just like, uh, do I just inspire this little side, uh, sidebar? Yeah. But um, actually, I got a Jay Smooth in a video about this. He made this comparison too, um, where it's like, you don't get offended if somebody says, hey, you got something in your teeth. You thank them because your intent and your impact weren't aligned there, right? Mm -hmm. you, you didn't do something nefarious. It just, it happened. It's part, of, it's part of life. And then you fix it. You engage with that imperfection by removing it. Well, if we think about our practice that way, if we think about what we do and go, hey, I know your intent is to make kids, to, to help kids learn, but the impact is they're disengaging because they don't find it interesting. Well, we can change that practice. We can find ways to make it interesting. And it's not an indictment of you know, you're not a good person or you're not a good teacher. What is an indictment is if you find that data and you don't do anything about it, that's when we got the problem. Hmm. That, that's it right there, man. I think we've got to do a lot more listening, mm -hmm. a lot more of deep engagement, not the stuff y'all talked about where it's just like, just show up so we can tell you what's going on and you can, you know, kind of follow the script, but really deep engagement and understanding of who we serve. Yeah. And, Teaching, and leading schools. To me, it is a sacred stewardship. Families send us their greatest resource. And I don't mean to sound cliche or whatever, but kids are the greatest things in my life, my four children. And if I was to send them to you, I want to have the confidence you're going to love them almost as much as I do. You're going to create the environment where they can be the adults that they intend to be, right? The, the great yeah. people that I hope they can be, right? Yeah. That's that they intend to be, by the way. And yes. I think that's important. No, that's not, a, we can't under undersell the importance that they intend, to, not the aspirations I have for them, right? but the aspirations that they have for themselves. I think that's key. I super big shout out to y'all. I know he is incredibly busy for joining us uh, yeah. on, on the kickoff to season two of the board of ed. I mean, I, I'll be honest. I was a little nervous having him on because he's a professor and I was afraid like he was doing all this research and it was going to come across stale or, but he, the you, way thought, he uh, you thought he was going to give you a pop quiz. That's what happened. <laughs> no, you know, but I, I you know, the, his writing was so compelling. Yeah. We had to try it. And I, he brings that energy into the inner. He's so fired up and passionate about this stuff. And so I just encourage folks to find y'all meta in a variety of form, forms, right? Like he's at Harvard, right? So if you're, if you happen to be there, sign up for a course. He wrote uh, the opinion piece in the New York times back in December 23rd, 2020, make schools more human. Uh, and then he uh, co-authored with another awesome educator, Dr. Sarah Fine, a book called in search of deeper learning. Um, I got it on Audible. 
Um, so it's, it's out there, it's available, but, you know, check him out because, you know, he's, he's the real deal. Yeah. Uh, we'll put a link to the, to the article uh, on our website, the board of ed.com. That's the B O R E D of ed.com. Uh, make sure you follow us on, uh, uh, Instagram and Twitter at the underscore board of ed. That's B O R E D. Uh, we're also on Facebook and LinkedIn, the board of ed, uh, and, and make sure you're subscribing on whatever podcast service you have. We have another episode, uh, coming up in a few weeks. Um, and season two has officially begun. Yes, sir. It has. We're on this journey together, y'all. I hope you will tune in, uh, and listen to us every episode, um, because, the people we talk to are important uh, and, and, and even more importantly than that or they're powerful and brilliant but more importantly than that you are powerful and brilliant you do important work like I said as educators you have the most sacred stewardship so I just want to encourage you that um, if no one else says it the Board of Ed is in your corner we love you we appreciate what you do for our young people we'll see you next time stay bored yeah. Yeah.